Hi all, uh, here we go again on the Steve Perriman podcast for another week, uh, trying to give you supporters out there an insight into the inner workings of our great club. Obviously, from my viewpoint, having been a player there uh, between 1967 and 1986, and returning for a brief spell as assistant to Aussie Ardiles in the early 90s. So this one's a bit different, um, as there's no game, no opponents to talk about uh, this weekend because of International Week uh, to focus on. So I've asked Howard and Tom, actually, for questions. So Tom's coming out the closet to give us a question that he's always wanted to ask. Um, so we can achieve what I've just spoken about and, and give you a, a perspective uh, from the inside track. So relating back to last week, I told you a story about moving in and three massive uh, lorries turning up here with all our stuff on. And, and I think I said, you know, people out there be thinking, oh, that's all his, all his uh, trophies and memorabilia. And thankfully, I did say at the end of it, of course, I'm joking. The reason for starting off down that line was to tell a story about Jimmy Greaves and the sort of banter that goes on in a dressing room. And this banter, bearing in mind I only played with Jimmy for six months when I first got into the team. Jimmy Greaves announced one day in the dressing room, I think before training, not before a game, that he couldn't sleep last night. He got very little sleep. He's feeling not great for lack of sleep. And it was because his trophy cabinets were creaking all night long under the strain of all his caps and prizes and medals and player of the year awards, etc., etc., And then turning to Phil, Bill and saying, Phil, I suppose you slept great last night. Meaning <laughs> that Philip didn't have any such trophies. So that was the point of starting down that line. Unfortunately, I forgot to mention it <laughs> to finish off the story. So I'm finishing it off about a week late. And uh, so bear that in mind. Um, so that's my apology from last week. Um, so Howard, you've got some questions for me that uh, hopefully stimulate me to, to give the inside track on, on, on events that happened in the past. So off you go, Howard, welcome. And uh, thank you for your involvement and thank you for your thinking time that you've given to these questions. Thank, thank you. For so your off we go. I really felt one was wondering how you felt about the current situation where you've got top managers, we had actually uh, Guardiola and Klopp on Sunday, complaining about their players getting injured because they're not able to rest long enough and they're playing too many games. Now, when I look at that situation, 
certainly was, as we said with some of the things we talked through last week, you know, the Spurs team in the early 60s were playing three games in four days. Yeah. There used to be more games to be played and they played them. Is it because they actually the players are fitter now? They're, they're tightly wound to a perfect pitch. If they get in, they're more likely to, to strain that muscles. I don't know. They also, when those, te- when those teams play in Europe, as we, as we do, we rest an awful lot of the players. So we, they're complaining about too many games, but actually they don't use them for that many, that long. Yeah. So um, we're all aware of the strength and the depth of Spurs squad these days, which is great um, and very promising. Uh, you've also got to service that group of players as well. So, you know, if you keep picking the same 11 or one or two changes for, for injuries, then you're going to have a lot of unhappy players. So I can, I can sympathise with a manager from that point of view of making changes. Um, if it's about games in a short space of time, as we've mentioned, Howard, before, um, when I scored two goals against AC Milan, we played four games in six days. So, of course, a different era. I think they are sharper and fitter than, than we were, actually. Um, but maybe that's my legs aching when I'm watching games these days and I'm thinking, oh, I couldn't run like that. <laughs> but, but trying to put myself in the moment when we were playing those four games in six days or two games in three days over Easter or something like that, I always preferred, and I like the term, keep the wheels moving. So that's keeping the, the wheels oiled of your body when you're playing games. And if you ask any player, would you prefer to train or play? I guarantee you there's something wrong with a player that says he prefers training. Of course, we prefer to play. So my opinion was that, of course, you with a squad of players, and maybe our squad in the 80s wasn't as big as today, but whatever squad you had, you know, Tottenham Hotspur don't sign players who are bad players. So the players waiting to come in are more than worthy of, you know, stepping up to the plate. So if my body had some sort of carrying an injury from the day before's game or two days before, and I thought I couldn't compete to, to a satisfactory level, um, then why shouldn't I drop out and let, you know, a new player in, maybe a young player and maybe a, a, a so-called squad player. Um, but if that wasn't the case, I wanted to play. And, and I've got to say that I would rather play tired than play rusty. So playing rusty is a squad player who never plays, plays the odd training ground game, I suppose, that they fix up specially and, and maybe a, a, a special reserve team fixture. Although I know players these days don't like to play in the reserves. But, um, but yeah, so, um, you know, if they never play and then once every two months they get the chance to get on for 20 minutes or even start a game, 
I've got to tell you that in terms of match preparation, match fitness, they must be rusty. And guess what? They're being judged by supporters, by judges, by coaches, by managers, as if they are 100% fit. And that's not always the case with players who just pop into the team and pop out of it. So, so I, I am always a bit wary, Howard. I'm sure they've all got statistics. Main, you know, I think your point was, are they so finely tuned, these players, like an E-type Jag? I don't think I could have ever put my fitness or my body shape or whatever, you know, allied to, the, to a Jaguar. But, um, you know, are they so superbly trained uh, athletes that any slight tiredness can put them off, off center? So um, it's an interesting question, Howard. I'm not sure I've given you a good answer, but, but uh, I always preferred to play. And um, I think if you look at Harry Kane, he prefers to play as well. And... Um, and you feed off one performance into the next. And if you, if you tell me, you know, I looked at this three or four years ago when rotation was all the fashion and a lot of this is fashionable with current thinking. If you tell me the player that was rested because of so-called weak opponents in the FA Cup, if you can tell me or guarantee me that that player rested on that day was sharper, fitter, the next game, I sort of have an argument with you because it, that wasn't apparent to me. So yes, don't play because of fear of extra injury. Don't play for fear of making a slight injury any worse and being out for then a long time. But uh, if you can play, I think you've got to play. That That's my opinion. Good question though, Howard. Tom, have you got one? Have indeed. So, being a um, be, being a chap in his late thirties, um, I've got very little memory of your playing days. Um, maybe some some brief flashes from from when I was five or six. Uh, but I was well on board the Spurs train by the time you came back with um, with Aussie in nineteen ninety three. Obviously, a very different experience for you um, at Spurs that time um, compared to playing. Uh, I'd like to know what your fondest memory of your spell in the dugout was um, during that period. Okay, so that's an interesting one. Um, not a happy period for me, Tom, by any means. Uh, from the elation of being asked back by Aussie, our dealers, to be his assistant when Aussie got the job. Aussie took over from Terry Venables, who sort of got dismantled a bit by, by Alan Sugar when their relationship broke up. So delighted to go back. And I, that, that was the joy for me. I was returning to the club where I'd been a boy and gr hopefully grew into a man, an experienced footballer. And in 19 years that I was there, I made some fantastic friends at Tottenham, both inside the club and outside the club. And, and so to go back and be a part of that, fantastic Tottenham family again was was a, a job too good to turn down a situation just too good to let pass by and I don't know if you remember or you probably wouldn't but 
but I um I was manager of Watford when Ozzy uh, gave me the offer. So to go from a manager's job, albeit in the championship, and to then take an assistant's job is is not quite right. But and it was it was only the fact that it was Tottenham that um, encouraged me to make that change of of direction of of career. Of course, still football, but you know, being a manager and being an assistant are two completely different things i know we're dealing with football and we're dealing with players and we're dealing with tactics and stuff but but when you've been at the sharp end as i've been then for about five six seven years of making those decisions and now all of a sudden somebody else is at the sharp end and you're trying to help him make as good decisions as possible um it really you know when 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 the the, the buck doesn't stop with you. It's a, uh, it's, it, it could be described that I take an easy way out by, by dipping out of being a manager. And that actually wasn't the case. I, um, so I believe I was very supportive to Aussie. Um, I respected this man a great deal. I was, I was dumbfounded when Aussie lost his job. Um, He's one of the best people I've seen in um, in action at half time or you know the pre-match talk or whatever. And there were just too many problems at the club for it ever to be able to ex- uh, succeed. And the nature of Terry Venables, of course, a, an excellent coach, great manager turned into being an owner of the club. So, you know, what else would you want at your club that the the man at the top completely understanding the ins and outs of the football world and transfers and tactics and all that goes with it. So um, there was a huge fallout and, and, you know, what, what made it a bit worse was that I'm back in the place where I, you know, learned my football and was respected and then you notice that the club is not the one that you joined as a 15-year-old and left it as a 35-year-old. It was a completely different situation and, and the business world had taken over. And you, you just, you just I, I was actually in a bit of limbo of, of knowing what I thought was right from the previous playing days to wondering, you know, what's happening now. So there was a lot of disappointments. There was a lot of frustrations in it. And, um, but of course you, you're part of managing great players, Teddy Sheringham, for instance, a fantastic striker, um, creator of goals as well. Reminds me a bit of, of Harry in a way. Um, Jürgen Klinsmann, a delight to to be in his company and and train him and coach him and and try and lead him. So you know who, who can forget the Sheffield Wednesday game early on in in that season. Um, I, I'll never forget as well the first game. Ozzy was in charge and I was helping him a one nil victory at uh, Newcastle away. Um, fantastic started off on the right foot and and uh, 
So there was a lot to be said for it. Behind the scenes was too, there was too much nonsense going on and it spoilt um, what should have been a fantastic uh, experience. And I've said it before, I've said it in my book um, that Steve Perryman, a Spurs man, uh, a West Londoner, but turned into a North Londoner because of the quality of, of, um, of people around the club inside and out, couldn't wait to get out of that club. And, and I don't like saying that because it doesn't sound right, but it's the truth and it's honest. Um, I, there was a number of people there that I didn't want to be around. And when you think of, of the amount of good people that were there still when I joined, you know, some years later after leaving in 86, um, that's saying a lot. So um, I, it seems a nicer place now when I go back very occasionally. And um, I'm sure business is still at the front, but there's different ethics involved now. And um yeah, so it, it, there, there wasn't a lot of high moments. I, I've mentioned a couple there, but um, but the, the basic joy of was the the chance to go back and reacquaint myself with um, with good friends that I've made over many years there, and we all we were all of the same Tottenham family and all wanted the same things for this great club, but um, I don't think that was matched that. Uh, own a sort of board level and so I I um, own up to, to wanting out and, and of course it was coming anyway whether I wanted it or not once Ozzy went it was obvious that I was going to go and uh, the, the real positive part of it was that we continued our relationship as players into management and then we we continued it on into Japan which was from the worst couple of years of my career to the best actually um of course that's managing wise not not playing wise so um the fact that i joined aussie and said yes to him perhaps if i hadn't done at that stage and stayed at watford then the japan thing would would never have happened and and that would have been a complete shame so good question tom thank you very much back to you howard if you have another one i do just coming right up to date we won one nil on Sunday with a classic Harry Kane goal. Um, how long do you think, and what kind of basis do you think the understanding is going to take to get that, that front three that everyone's raving about to actually produce the goods? Kane, Bale, and so on. Uh, yeah. So you should only get picked if you prove in training that you are up to the job and actually the better players you've got around you you need to be better than those ones that you're competing against for a place in the team so understanding takes a long time to to gel and you can see it with harry and and son fantastic understanding of, of when Harry comes short and Son goes in behind and Harry can find him. Most normal players would be looking to lay the ball back for them to play Son through for, for goal chances. 
and uh, they've got such an understanding that that um, and I I'm not sure how they've achieved that. Do you do you achieve that? Um, I, I like to think that I had an understanding with, with Glenn Hoddle and Glenn watched my career for good and bad in his early years at Tottenham, even as a supporter at Tottenham, he watched me. And, and we sort of knew where each other were all the time without looking. And now you need to have a look. You need to check your shoulder to see where things are, but you can't always do that. And a number of times it was just like a telepathy. Now that's bearing in mind. It's I've always said this, it's easier to destroy than create. So our, our, our balance was, I was a destroyer and Glenn was a creator. And the better way that this destroyer could get the ball to Glenn meant the better we played. And um, that telepathy I mentioned helped that happen. The great thing about these two is uh, Son and Harry. And I've actually not seen um, Gareth Bale yet. I've not seen him, uh, yes, highlights, but... I don't believe highlights, to be fair. But they do it in an attacking sense. And it's because the prize is so big, i.e. the goal, a goal, a chance for you to go one up or a chance for you to equalise. You know, that last pass becomes so much more important than my pass into midfield into Glenn. So the stakes are so much higher between Son and Harry. Now, whatever they've got, they've got to get that across to Gareth Bale. Bearing in mind, Gareth Bale is a wonderful player himself. And yet, not to discriminate that you're only going to get this relationship with Gareth Bale because, you know, there's other players there who, for the time being, might be more relevant to the first eleven. So um, it's a really difficult one, Howard. It, it's, it must be done on the training field. I'm, I'm sure that it's done with video. And, you know, uh, Mr. Mourinho and his staff are very adept at, at this stuff. The best teams have the best combinations. There's no doubt about that. And I would say combinations is a very important word. When... People know what's going to happen next. They've got a clue to what's happening next. Gives you the right, the chance, the opportunity to move before the opponent. And when you get that, for instance, when Harry got injured at Old Trafford, Son knew that Harry was going to try and take that quick and made his dart. Now, if Harry does it, Half a second later, would he be offside and all of that stuff? Well, guess what? That happens as well. But um, that understanding level of those two was, was phenomenal. And if, if they can involve the other third player, be it Bale or someone else, into that type of understanding, Tottenham are a fantastic team at the front end. And... 
more solid now in midfield and looking a bit better at the back. And and I know you're not asking this question, but I'm giving you it, Howard. That's that it would be the problem for me at centre back if if there is one. And um, so it's not about just the front three's understanding. It's about the centre-backs understanding with each other, the goalkeeper's understanding with those two, how they link into a back three when he changes it or to a back four with two full-backs involved in you now, how far you go up the field out when you drop off. So all interesting stuff, but um, it's all going to be played out, especially in the next few weeks because the games are coming thick and fast. And um, we're all hopeful, but um, but let's see how we go from here. Thank you. Um, I don't know why Gazza's come to mind this week. But have you ever, do you know Gazza? Do you ever have any meetings with him? Just what games you saw him play? Sorry, how can you just say that again? I was, for some reason, I got talk, talking to somebody about Gazza. And all I'm asking is, did, did you see much of him? Were you ever involved with him? Never, never. Only, only off the field, and um, that was a complete joy. Um, uh, I was aware of him through the television, um, watching his power. When you want to compare someone like Gaza, a great player in that era, um, and I like to think he played his best football at Spurs. Um, I know he went to Italy and various places and, and he came up through the ranks at Newcastle, but I think his, his hot spell, which we all have, um, the hot spell was at the hot Spurs, hot Gaza, and um, the power. So if you tried to, to relate him to Glenn Hoddle, for instance, two yeah. great players, Gaza's power was phenomenal. The way that he covered ground, the the purpose with the ball, running with the ball was 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 phenomenal. And this lad, similar to Glenn, had complete confidence in himself. He rode the wave of of um, that confidence, uh, and he took it to the extreme. He tried things that were just unbelievable and and you would you too would know more about that than me for quick so you've got to watch someone like that for 90 minutes to get the full extent of his range of of abilities um so i only saw it in bits and flashes and then then you witness the the i never get tired of watching that free kick against the arsenal um at wembley i never get tired of that and he can be, you know, that phenomenal a talent. Um, and in some ways, a shame that, you know, he's that purple patch finished too early for me. Um, and therefore, you know, I, I love consistency. It's, it's how I'm built, really. I, I, you know, when you're saying to me, can Spurs win the league? I would say, well, I, I want to see a bit more consistency from them. They're getting consistency of clean sheets now and, you know, um, grind, grinding out a win, 1-0, for instance, and that that's a sign of a good team as well. So 
Gaza needed more consistency from the pitch to his life as well. And yet he was fantastic company. I loved being in it, in that company. I was part of various um, talks that he gave or w where I happened to be. Once I even warmed up for him um, near Torquay. How famous is that when you warm up a, a Spurs audience for, for Gaza? And he was great. And they listened to every word and they were, they were laughing their socks off and... In some ways, it was sad, Howard, as well, because he he sees things in a certain way, and and um, as as great as he is, and and I took my stepson with me, who had gone through a bit of a, a bad spell, um, romantically, and and I took him to give him a lift, and Gaza was great to to Ryan. He was absolutely great with him, and it's not as if I told Gaza that this lad needed lifting. He, um, he just, in the dressing room before, during and after, he was great. And, and they tell me, and um, remember my wife Kim was part of the, the Tottenham setup when I met her. She would tell me how available Gaza was to go and do good deeds, go and speak to kids in hospital and help them over their, their health issues and stuff. So this is a, a top class man, fantastic footballer. And um, I just wish that I'd seen as much of him, Howard, as you saw. The problem is I was off earning money somewhere else. So I, I couldn't do that. What about you? How do you see him? Whenever people come around and start talking about name your best ever Spurs team, Gazza probably doesn't get a look in because Glenn is so dominant in, in, that, in that position. Um, but Gazza was a totally different player to, Gazza, to Glenn, but, but to an extent very, very as effective. Um, certainly saw some amazing games and things he did that were just crazy. And the, the 1991 Cup final, Cup all the way there, he dragged us to Wembley. We were not a good side, we weren't playing well, and each round he dragged us into it. I remember particularly down, I think, the fifth round down at Portsmouth. We were losing 2-1 and he put a, he crossed the ball for Paul Allen, which he thought, there's no way this is going to be anything worthwhile. But it was absolutely pinpointed under the top of his head. He scored and we then went on to win the cup. But um, strangely, of course, the final, he only lasted eight minutes and he's very lucky that he didn't get sent off and we're very lucky that he didn't get sent off. Yeah, I, I can imagine how hyped up he was yeah. for that game. And that sort of took him over at that mad moment, didn't it? Yeah. And yeah, it, I, I think this is a situation where your strength could be your weakness. And he, he thrived off the back of that um, energy and being hyped up he thrived off it and that led him to some great games the, the one you've mentioned at Portsmouth I remember seeing the highlights on television and um and I I said I don't believe highlights I believed what I saw that day because that was pure talent and um sometimes that that 
desire um, and excitable sort of uh, energy that he, he gave sometimes worked against him. But what a great player. And what a great person to, to say wore a Spurs shirt, Howard. Absolutely. Okay, next one. Um, just you were talking about Jimmy Greaves before and you, you fronted for him, you warmed, warmed up the audience. Yeah. It just reminded me of, of, of one of my favourite Greaves stories. We were playing Bolton, horrible, miserable day. We were playing up at Bolton, their centre-halves are six feet tall, ten feet wide, nothing should pass. And one of them says to the other, here, Nobby, Jimmy's on his way through, chipping back for me, will you? <laughs> I've heard Jimmy tell that story. The um, What's an interesting one, Howard? I was talking about the banter. Yes. With Jimmy Greaves in the, in the dressing room that day. And I think, I think people might be interested in this. Um, young player gets in the team, 17 years of age, that's me. How do you cope with a dressing room? And coping with the dressing room, as much as anything, was coping with the banter because they were all internationals. They all had a humour and a lot of time was spent, call it, the modern word is banter, but in the old days it was called Mickey taking. So this 17-year-old, I thought to myself, Okay, I proved I could handle it on the field. But if I'm going to handle it, if I'm going to have a long career, I've got to handle it off the field as well. So I've got to tell you, Howard, for 18 months, I just sat in the dressing room before training, after training, before games, after games. I virtually did not open my mouth for fear of, not fear, but being aware that if I said something, the players, the older players, might have some ammunition to use against me. So what I did was I did a lot of listening and I, I almost made a file on each player as per what I would come back with in terms of banter should I get attacked? Well, they could attack me for 18 months and I'd just smile and not nasty attack. That's not, that's absolutely not right. But in my early days, the typical banter was how many caps have you got? How big's your house? Well, I had no caps <laughs> and I didn't have a house. So what's the point of me entering that sort of talk? dressing room nonsense. So, um, yeah, I look back on it. It's, it sort of helps you grow up. Um, you're making decisions without sort of giving an opinion. Pat Jennings was never going to banter me or anyone. Um, Philip Billwood, Joe Kinnearwood, Cyril Knowles was top, top quality banter. He had a northern humour about him. 
that was normally aimed at us Southerners. Of course, there was a rivalry between English and Scots. But, um, but so you're making decisions on people. You're making decisions on whether they're going to sort of support you or not um, with regard to this type of thing. On the football field, everyone had to support everyone. And as much as I said I was, I was silent, that was only in the dressing room. Out on the training field and out on games, on the pitch, I was as vocal as anyone else because that's where you earn your, your money as such. You weren't earning money just having a quick um, response to someone taking the mickey out of you uh, on a Tuesday morning, for instance. I'm always... Um, where where was... Okay, Terry Naylor, when he got involved with a team, we signed him from being an amateur... He worked in Smithfield Market. He played for the A team as an amateur, which was our third professional team. So when he signed pro, whereas I was 17, Terry was probably 19, 20. And in football, a year is a long time. But me and Phil Holder, my mate, we couldn't wait for Terry to have his first day in the changing room before going out to train, because we had seen Terry for a year, maybe two, and heard him, heard his stories. And Terry didn't back down to anyone. And we were just waiting for the bomb to drop. And before his first training session at Chesham, he got dressed, he got into his strip. He walked over to the mirror, and guess what? The first team players don't know him at this time. He walked over to the mirror, started to brush his hair as if he had a comb, but he didn't. Just looking at himself in the mirror and said to the mirror in front of everyone, if anyone fancies dying today, just tackle me. <laughs> well, what an entry into that dressing room. Can you imagine these international players? Woo, who's this? <laughs> so I have the utmost respect for Terry to have the front to do that. He set his stool out saying to people, come on then, I'm, I'm here for the taking. And you can imagine from Smithfield Market, I suggest Terry from whatever age he went there to whatever age he left it and joined us, then he was more than capable of handling himself verbally, physically or whatever. So uh, me and Phil, had so many laughs and since about that first day of Terry Naylor in that dressing room with the big stars of, you know, Mike England and Pat Jennings and Jimmy Greaves and Martin Chivers and all those boys. So, um, so well done Terry for that. I, I really respected him for that. The way, the way he come out firing, attacking, as we say, <laughs> he attacked from day one. He always dressed a bit like George Cole in mind, didn't he? Yes, he did, actually. Yeah, yeah, very good, Howard. Very good. So um, the other thing I think needs discussing is, is the form of Ollie Watkins. Yes. Now, you may ask, what, what is the relevance of that to Spurs people? Well, Ollie Watkins come through the system at Exeter, and I was a big part of that as director of football. 
Um, so I'm aware of this lad's ability. When he left us and joined Brentford for 1.8 million, Tottenham were very interested in him through the, the experience, through the knowledge, through the wisdom of David Pleat. David Pleat, I think, was responsible for Deli Ali coming to the club. And when you spend five million on someone, he better be good. Well, all of a sudden, that five million pounds worth is now worth 50 million back in the day. So David obviously had an opinion and he fancied this lad. I think it was because of a, a, a weak final, a playoff final that, uh, that Tottenham Poch didn't go for Ollie Watkins and he joined Brentford. I wasn't disappointed because I thought Ollie Watkins is going to play at Brentford and he may not see the light of day at Tottenham. Remember, this was two years before he, he eventually goes to Aston Villa. So it proven to be that Brentford was the exact right club for him. He scored goals there. He made himself noticed. So much so that Aston Villa signed him for £28 million. So this brings us on to the subject of, um, of sell-ons. Exeter City got an upfront of £1.8 million some little extra add-ons for the number of games, and then eventually got 15% of the profit of the sell-on. So I think they bagged nigh on another 4 million out of it, and um, which is keeping them going today. You can imagine a supporter-owned club in these present circumstances with no crowds allowed in and stuff. So that's an interesting one, sell-ons. Um, I'll be, be brief on this because I don't think we've got too much time left, but um, a very wise man, Jack Petchy, my chairman at, uh, at Watford, said to me, Steve, when we, when we sell a player, do not accept less than 20% of a sell-on of the profit. When you buy a player, do not give away more than 10% of that sell-on. So I think what that tells you by this astute businessman, I worked it out for myself, 15% is about right both ways. If you want to be fair, 15% both ways is right. And therefore that encouraged me to get 15% off of, off of Brentford. And it turned into big money. Now that is not always the case. We sold a player from Exeter. Now this has nothing to do with, with, um, Tottenham, but I'm trying to explain. Uh, uh, James Coppinger, young player, decided he wanted to go. Uh, Exeter were losing money hand over fist, couldn't pay the wages. How could we stop him going? So I allowed him to go to, to um, Doncaster for £30,000. It was probably worth more, but our situation was that bad. We needed the money. I got a 15% sell-on. That was in early 2000. He is still playing for Doncaster today. <laughs> so, so guess what? That 15% could have been 50%, 5-0% because it would have come to the same amount of money, zero. So gotten zero money extra from the James Coppinger transfer. 
And uh, fair play to him. He's been loyal to Doncaster. At one point, we read excitedly in the Sunday People, I think it was, that James Coppinger has got a big chance to go to Forest, Nottingham Forest, for a million pounds. This was after he'd been at Doncaster for three, four, five years. Guess what? We wished he had gone for a million pounds because that would have given us extra money to use and would have made the 15% in play. But um, as I told you, he's still playing from today. I watched him play live on telly the other day in an FA Cup tie. So, um, so yeah, Exeter didn't make any money out of that, but they've made up for it with Ollie Watkins. I think I've said on this podcast before that Jose Mourinho was interested in Ollie. For whatever reason, it didn't happen. Um, uh, Tottenham went in another direction. But... Well done, Ollie. You're doing the job for us at Spurs by scoring three goals against Liverpool. Fantastic. Well done. And then actually less goals, but more importantly, scored two against arch rivals Arsenal. So albeit we haven't signed him, he's still doing a good job for us. And um, I want to say well done to Ollie Watkins. Great lad. He deserves everything he gets. So Perhaps, uh, perhaps when he leaves Aston Villa, he might be a, a contender to join Tottenham. Third time of trying. Very good. Okay, okay Howard. Good. So um, let's round it up there. Um, thank you for listening again. As I always say, um, no game this weekend, but we've got the internationals. So important that the uh, Spurs players come back fit and well. No injuries uh, to continue the season on in, in uh, the, the fine style that they've started it. So um, thank you again, Howard, for your questions. Much appreciated. And for you, Tom, for your work and even your voice this time, Tom. It was good to hear you. People wondered if you were for real um, just working behind the scenes there. So thank you both and um, up the spurs and see you all, speak to you all next week. Bye-bye.